WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is Impact's one-hour discussion of news, events, and organizations within MSU's community. And now, this week's Exposure. Hello, everyone, and good morning. Welcome to Exposure. I'm here with George. Whoa, he's back. I know. it's It's been a bit of a, a sabbatical for me, but I have returned. Hey, everybody. <laughs> So today we have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Michael Gillen. He's here for part of the God's Not Dead event. He is a very smart person as he has a triple PhD. Yeah, yeah saying very smart person foiled too. He's got three PhDs or such, like even just a dichotomy there. Michael, how are you doing today? You know what? I just got off an airplane and I'm feeling pretty good. I'm just delighted to be here with you guys. You're fun. Looking forward <laughs> to our conversation. Oh, sure. Thanks for coming in. My really pleasure. My it. pleasure. Well. All right. So you want to talk about your affiliation with this God Does Not Dead book and with Dr. Rice Brooks? Yeah. Well, you know, Rice and I met about three, four years ago. I had just moved from Los Angeles to Nashville and we discovered mm -hmm. we were neighbors. Uh, one thing led to another. He actually invited me to have coffee, and it, I thought it was going to take about a half hour. It ended up being like a six-hour meeting. No joke. <laughs> wow. And he just you know, just told me all about what he was doing on college campuses. And, you know, I, I've done a lot in my life. Uh, I've, I'm a, as you say, I have a Ph.D. in physics, math, and astronomy. I, I taught physics at Harvard. I was the science correspondent at ABC News, did Good Morning America, Nightline 2020, all the rest of it. But um, I had been away from college for a number of years because I was mostly on television. And so when he, when Rice, uh, when Dr. Brooks invited me to join him in these college presentations, I really, I thought, yeah, let's do this. And so I'm, sure. I'm loving it because it's just taking me right back to the classroom, and I, I love talking to young people. I have a 19-year-old son myself, and so I have some rough idea of how hard life is for <laughs> for you guys. You know, I, I thought I, I grew up in a tough world, but. Uh, you guys are you're growing up in a tough world. Yeah. yeah, well, and it always changes from, you know, generation to generation. It does, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how your faith influences your work? I mean, you've worked as a professor as well as, you know, just in mm -hmm. the world of science. Yeah. just want to, first of all, say that I wasn't always a um, Christian. I am now. Um, all through grad school, I really was just a scientific monk. I lived for science. That's mm -hmm. all I cared about. But now my faith informs just about everything that I do and that I am. Number one, it, it informs how I treat other people. I I strive to treat others the way I want to be treated. I don't always, you know, hit a bullseye right? Um, because I'm imperfect, I'm human. But that's important to me. And when I was producing a movie uh, a few years back, it's called Little Red Wagon, I would invite anybody who wants to be uplifted and feel good about the about the human species to, re to watch Little Red Wagon. Um, I made certain that, you know, everybody on set uh, felt like we were part of a family. It was important to me as a Christian to set um, an example to how everybody should be treated. I was right. on the set day and night, uh, made sure everybody had what they needed and so forth. And uh, But it also, um, it also gets me on an airplane. I mean, I don't like traveling. I, I've traveled to, I don't know. I've lost count the number of countries all over all the world. Over. I, yeah, I've been to the North Pole. I've been to the South Pole. I've been to the Atlantic, bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. I, wow. I've just done so many crazy things that, you know, I'm kind of traveled out. But right. um, so my faith is why I'm here, truthfully, because I live in a very comfortable place in Dallas, Texas, on a seven-acre farm, and 
I could easily just uh, live an easy life. I've worked really hard all my life. Um, but my faith uh, urges me to, to come and speak to you guys. I, I, as I said earlier, it's a tough world. You're full of mm-hmm. very um, fake news, as they say. There's a lot of fake information, very unreliable information out there. And so I try to speak the truth. So that's two, two of the ways that my faith informs my life now. You, Absolutely. And you have a triple PhD, so what drove yeah. you to get that? Well, I didn't intend to, Stephanie. I'm just an overachiever. I have been. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was born in East L.A. in the middle of the Mexican barrio. I'm Mexican, Spanish, Cuban, with a little bit of Austrian. And so growing up in the Mexican barrio of East L.A., I mean, I never met a scientist, but I had this desire to be one since I was seven years old. And uh, I guess it was that that overachieving spirit that I, I was born with, I guess. Um, I think of it now in terms of a gift from God mm-hmm. as a Christian. Um, that took me from East L.A. to UCLA to Cornell, where I got my PhDs, and then ultimately to Harvard, as I indicated. I went to Cornell with the intention of becoming a high-energy physicist. That's all I wanted to be. They had a cyclotron there, or a synchrotron, rather. Um, an atom. It's a kind of atom smasher. It was one of the few universities at the time that had one on campus. It still is one of the few. Um, but as I got there, I started asking uh, some questions, and I, I realized I needed a lot more math, and, and I started asking questions about the galaxies. Some stuff, stuff was going on with galaxies that interested me a great deal, so I, I knew I had to have a lot of astronomy. So I ended up with a committee of faculty on all three departments, and in the last final four-hour uh, PhD exam, mm. uh, those professors from the three departments could ask me any question for four hours. They grilled me. And uh, that's that was fun. I survived. I'm survived. I'm here. <laughs> right. And, and you it was cer- quite, quite right. an experience. Yeah. And you certainly strike me as well, obviously a lifelong learner. Yeah. And kind of touching back on what you said, like you know, after grad school, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of you called yourself a scientific monk. Right. Like, what experience or what kind of challenge did you kind of like explore your faith? Why was that the next step after grad well, school? Well, as I said, I when I said I, I was a scientific uh, monk, um, I I meant it. I I Got up at about six in the morning. I was in a small dorm room, a single room near near the bathroom, so I liked it. I had my privacy. Right. It was a really tiny room, tinier than the studio that we're sitting in. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, there was room for a single bed, a desk, and a dresser, oh, sure. and that's it. That okay? sounds like my dorm upstairs. <laughs> okay, so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yep. Right. Um, and uh, so I would go to my lab, um, which is in the basement of LNS, the Lab of Nuclear Studies there at Cornell, and I would be there until about three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I would hardly eat. I had no social life. I wasn't interested in a social life. I was just happy. I was living out my dream. And uh, I would say about second year into my grad studies, I started asking a very simple question, and that is, hey, I'm studying about this fabulous universe uh, from the tiniest to the largest scales, and uh, wonder how it all came about. And I knew, of course, science was offering me the answer that it was all just a very elegant um, accident. Right. And I, I contemplated that as a possibility and did some calculations, and it was pretty clear to me that that wasn't a satisfying answer. Uh, again, I wasn't at all religious. I was just a scientific monk, but it was just not intellectually satisfying. It seemed like a bit of a cop-out to me. So I remember going to school. I, uh, Carl Sagan was an astronomer at Cornell when I was a student there, and he was just becoming famous, and he would talk about the Vedas. And I didn't know what that was, and this was pre-Google. 
And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I can find answers uh, apart from what science is offering right. um, in the kind of the spiritual world. So I started with Vedas. I discovered that that's the sacred literature of the Hindu religion, uh, arguably the old, oldest re religion on earth. So then somebody gave me a copy of the I Ching, so I started doing that, and I went into Islam, was, uh, studied that, and my professor was Jewish, so I started going to sh uh, Shabbat services on Friday night. And... Uh, so in the midst of all that craziness, uh, one morning I traipsed back to my dorm room. It was about 3 in the morning, typically. And as I opened the door, I heard a scraping sound underneath. I looked down, and there was a white envelope with my name on it. And I uh, opened the envelope, and lo and behold, it was a Valentine's Day card. I didn't even know it was Valentine's Day. By then, mm -hmm. it was mostly over, and uh, or was over at 3 in the morning. It was the <laughs> previous day. So um, what intrigued me was that it was signed by a— um, female named Laurel Lucas, and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember she was in my recitation class a couple years before, and uh, anyway, so she was Kappa Kappa Gamma, and beautiful girl. You've seen the movie Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> so as you're listening to this, picture Beauty and the Beast, and I'll leave it up to you which is which. <laughs> I, I was definitely <laughs> not the her. beauty, I you know, yeah. I mean, tight jeans, afro, I mean, it's ridiculous. I just I, recalling the story, it's ridiculous that this beautiful Kappa Kappa Gamma undergrad would have any interest in me. So I went to thank her, and one thing led to another. I told her about uh, my searching for an answer to the simple question, where did the universe come from? And she said, well, have you read the Bible? And I'm like, eh, not really. It's not interesting to me. It's not exotic, like the I Ching and like right. the Transcendental Meditation International and all the other... Uh, uh, belief systems that I had explored with both feet up until then. And she said, well, you know what? And she, she, she said something that changed my life forever. And she said, look, if you read it, I'll read it with you. Wow. And, you know, I wasn't as stupid as I looked, and I looked pretty stupid. Uh, <laughs> and so I said, you know, it's a deal. It took us two years to read, and sure. um, it was a game changer for me. And so that was where I acquired my faith. So whereas a lot of kids today are maybe raised in a Christian home and they go to college and they lose their faith. <laughs> I was just right. the opposite. I went in with no faith and I found my faith in college. How crazy is that? That is wow. pretty crazy. Yeah. Also, just a reminder for our listeners, this is WDBM East Lansing. You're listening to Exposure. And today we are talking to Dr. Michael Gillen. Great. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you did talk about how you became a Christian in college. Can you give an example since then when your faith has been challenged and how you dealt with that? Yeah, after um, Laurel and I got married, <clears throat> we ended up getting married. Oh, and great. yeah, and we've we've been together for about like twenty seven years. It's really been cool. And um, I think one of the darkest things uh, for us, uh, Stephanie, was when we tried to have kids, we couldn't. Mm -hmm. And being a Hispanic family is really important to me really important to me. I always imagined having a big family, and uh, mm -hmm. it just wasn't happening for us. And so that's, um, you know, I wondered, what, you know, hey, God, what's what's going on here? You know, sure. why, right. why can't I have kids? Laurel and I were both, you know, just opening our hearts, opening our homes to having a big family, and it just didn't happen. But in the end, we ended up adopting the most wonderful little boy, and uh, he's the love of my life. Uh, he's the 19-year-old, and he's just a great, great kid. So even though my faith was tested a great deal, um, it's, um, uh, 
it's it's been it's been a blessing and a, it's been a blessing and a half. It's been, I I can't get into the whole story, but it's 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 yeah. been an amazing journey. Awesome. Wow. And you also talked about traveling a lot and yeah. being from you know the North Pole to the South Pole to yeah. the bottom of the ocean. Right. So I was told that you got to deep dive and visit the Titanic. Yeah, I was assigned the story. Um, I was going to do it for 2020. Um, and uh, they, so we, we flew to Halifax, Canada, met up with a Russian research ship, the Akademik Keldish. We uh, steamed out to the North Atlantic, and we were on station there for about 10 days. And during that 10 days, um, yes, I went inside a small three-man sub. Um, our pilot was a, Russia, a former uh, MiG pilot named Victor. Mm-hmm. And so it was me and this other guy, Brian Cook, from, from England. And we went down <clears throat> to look at the Titanic. When the Titanic uh, sank, it broke into two pieces right. and opened up like a pinata. And a lot of stuff that was inside fell uh, in between the two pieces. So the, the bow fell down, and, and then the stern, the back portion of the ship, kind of did a somersault and landed about, I, I can't remember exactly, but it, a, a, quite a distance from the bow. And in between the bow and the stern, there's something called the debris field, and this is where you see women's shoes and medicine cabinets and crates of unopened champagne and right. uh, valises and furniture. It was quite a sight. So after visiting the bow, we went across the debris field towards the stern, and what I'll never forget is in front of me was this big propeller, and it's uh, like polished brass, and I thought, gee, you know, it's been down in the ocean for quite a long time. It's surprising that it's so polished and mm-hmm. so nice and shiny and then next thing i noticed is that we were approaching it really fast i would have thought he'd be slowing down as we approached it and the Mm. next thing i knew there was a collision and stuff started falling down we only looking out a small porthole uh, maybe about six inches across right but my vision was obscured completely with just um just chunks of rusted metal just kind of um falling in front of my uh my um Porthole. And so uh, we were stuck down there for about 45 minutes. And I thought to myself, you know, this is how it's going to end for me. I mean, that, that sentence came into my head. This is how it's going to end for you. Right. Then I thought of Laurel. And then I thought, um, I've worried about my diving partner, Brian, um, worried that he might panic and go for the hatch and allow the water in. Ooh. That would have been instant death for us. So I reposition, you're, you're laying down looking at a porthole, you're laying on your stomach. So I kind of repositioned myself on the couch um, in case I saw Brian panicking and heading to the – I was ready to gang tackle him. <laughs> so after uh, after about 45 minutes to an hour, we noticed something had happened. Up until then, Victor was nudging the sub forward and then back, forward and back. Like if you get a car stuck in the mud, you try mm-hmm. to rock right. it out of there. totally. Uh-huh. Yeah, and you could hear the engine laboring and stuff falling down. And then after about 45 minutes to an hour, it quieted down, and we thought, hmm, something's going on. But we didn't want to say anything to Victor because we didn't want to disturb him. He was really concentrating on things, and you could tell that. He was communicating with the surface through sonar, very spooky-sounding stuff, uh, only added to the whole drama. And um, after a while, it seemed like we were loose and we were floating, so I turned to Victor, and I, I just said, okay. And then he looked at me, and he smiled big. He says, no problem. <laughs> and uh, so he asked us at that point whether we wanted to keep uh, touring the Titanic. Well, by then, we had been down there for, I don't know, about three, four hours. 
So we both said, no, no, take us up, take us up, take us up. <laughs> yeah, so, something like that. It makes sense. But yeah, I, I mean, I, it's got to be terrifying being down there for that long, too. Like, are you, Yeah. Yeah, and it takes two, uh, Stephanie, it takes two and a half hours to get down there. And oh, you, cork, you corkscrew down for a reason. And then, so I knew it was going to be, even if we said to him, as we did, no, take us back up, it was going to be another two and a half hours. So we just, we'd had enough by then, and we were both a little bit... Uh, well, we'd had seen another Titanic. It was just a weird feeling thinking that I was going to join all those people who died in the Titanic. Yeah. I mean, all these images. But I think for me now as a Christian, when I look at that story, what it makes me think of is how calm I was. And sure. I wonder where that calmness came from. And it's I think it's just because of my faith. And it was the feeling that, okay, I know death is not the end. It's just, uh, it's a transition. As I, I often say, it's not a terminus, it's a transition. Mm-hmm. In right. physics, we talk about phase transition. So I think of, a, of an ice cube. If you apply heat to an ice cube, it slowly kind of ages and dies. It kind of melts. But the ice cube dies, but the water doesn't go away. It just it turns into another uh, form of matter, liquid in this case. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I think of that when I read the Bible and speaks about there being life after death. In my scientific mind, I think of it that way, that death is a kind of a, what we call a phase transition, that uh, we go from one state of matter to another. So I knew down there in the Titanic, even though I was calculating how much oxygen we had left and how much more likely we were going to be able to survive, I just thought, you know, uh, it's going to be kind of interesting, you know, to cross over and see what it's all about. And I uh, was kind of excited about that. It was in a little strange way. Yeah. Uh, but so my faith helped keep me calm and uh, right. didn't, didn't stress out. But that was pretty cool. That's, that's to me, just so interesting. And even the fact that, like, you know, obviously you have your wife at home, you have all your oh, kids yeah. at home. And yeah. with with events like that, and you t- you just touched on it with that whole experience, how are you able to kind of, you know, remind yourself just to see God through kind of the, the daily happenings of life and, and science in our modern society, given how kind of the world treats everything very, I don't know what the proper term is, I suppose, controversially today? That might be a good one. I mean, yeah, especially because religion and science are often at odds, mm-hmm. I feel like, in our world today. So it's like, how do you see all of this beautiful, you know, you look outside, you see the world as it is, and it's beautiful, and you see mm-hmm. God in it, but you also see science, and how do you make those combine, I guess, in your life today? It's easy for me. <laughs> um, I, I think you used the word religion, and I, I would hope that your listeners would distinguish between religion and the Bible. Um, the Bible, for me, is um, a very interesting book. I've studied it a lot. Just I've studied so many textbooks in physics and math and astronomy and on and on and on. It's not a textbook in the in the sense that it's not a science textbook, but it's it's a book of uh, of truths. And one of the things that I did uh, several years ago is write a book called Amazing Truths: How Science and the Bible Agree. And I think that for me was a real eye-opener, that when I started reading the Bible seriously, I started recognizing truths in the Bible that I was studying as a, as a grad student and as a scientist. And so as you look at relativity and you look at quantum mechanics and, and all the rest of it, you, uh, it's, it's amazing how there's absolutely no conflict. I mean, there isn't. So it's not hard for me to coexist peacefully between um, 
maintaining my Christian beliefs and uh, ma- maintaining my devotion to science. It's it's really quite easy for you. I, I don't think most people—I'll be honest with you. I think most people are just too lazy to do that. I don't think they're going to put the time into it. I don't think uh, most people who who rail against uh, Christianity have even bothered to read the Bible. It's kind of pathetic, actually. I mean, above all, I'm an intellectual, mm-hmm. and and I'm devoted to the truth. And if, if you're interested in the truth about anything, it doesn't even have to be about God or science. It just If you're just interested in the truth, you've got to do your homework. Right. You can't just listen to other people. You can't even just listen to me. Uh, in, in the end, you've got to do the heavy lifting, and I have. I, I've done it over the last four decades, and I can just tell you honestly that for me, it's effortlessly. When I walk out and I see a rainbow, let's say, at the end of a thunderstorm, I, I think of, you know, the fact, I, I think of the physics, the, uh, you know, the reflection, the refraction, the diffraction that's involved in, in creating a rainbow and the 42-degree angle that it has to be from the sun and so forth. I mean, uh, that all that goes through my kind of scientific brain, but at the same time, I marvel at the rainbow. I remember when I was teaching at Harvard, I would ask my kids, what if it rained plastic on another planet? How would the rainbow look different? Or would there even be rainbows? Sure. So you can, you, you, you know, there is, for me, I have this kind of double-fisted appreciation for the universe because I see it not only with my IQ, but I also see it with my SQ, my spiritual quotient. And I, I've written a book called God's, um, Can a Smart Person Believe in God? And I, and I, talk about SQ. I introduce the concept. I even have an SQ test in there. So I just pity somebody who just kind of relies either just on their SQ or, or just on their IQ because they're just missing out on, they're missing out on the universe um, in, in its full glory. So for me, it's effortless. I see it every day. It's beautiful. Well, it's really interesting to see how you come from a science perspective and your faith and mm-hmm. that you have never stopped learning because mm-hmm. learning is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm excited for your event, which is actually tomorrow. And then mm-hmm. for our listeners, that would be this past Wednesday, <laughs> April it's the, in the 17th. Past. Yes. We're talking about the future, but when they listen to it, it'll be in the past. Yes. And, and by the yeah, way, you guys missed a great event. <laughs> uh, and, and by the way, Stephanie, it's been a joy talking to you two guys. And just, um, we don't have the time to get into so much stuff. We're going to get into it, some of it in the event. I mm-hmm. encourage right. people to check me out on Twitter, Dr. M. Gillen, or my Facebook page, or michaelgillen.com, if it's easier, and they can direct you to my Twitter page. But it's not, um, it's not living uh, comfortably with faith and science, because science requires faith as well. Mm-hmm. Right. If we had more time, we could get into that. It's not, that's not the dichotomy. It's, it's more subtle than that. But uh, for me... Um, it's life at its best because I see it, as I say, both with my IQ and my SQ, and I encourage you, your your listeners to, to try it out. Yeah. Again, this is WDBM East Lansing. You are listening to Exposure, and we were talking to Dr. Michael Gillen. One more thing before you head out here. So once someone believes that God is real and they see mm-hmm. how you know science proves that, how do you suggest they go about, you know, exploring their faith, especially with, you know, it is Easter Sunday today. So mm-hmm. how would they talk about, you know, the proof behind the resurrection as well as coincide like their beliefs with daily life? And, and specifically kind of under the lens of you mentioned earlier, just how kind of there's a different there's a different sense in kind of growing up for younger audiences today. Yeah. Like how, how does that 
equate into kind of yeah the day-to-day of like a, a college student yeah right sorry lots of questions no there. no no but good ones good ones uh, i kind of missed that from my harvard days i would always ask the kids just give me your best ones you know just hit me with your best shots <laughs> right you yeah know, I, I i just i feed off of good questions and those mm-hmm. are excellent questions you're asking first of all stephanie science doesn't prove anything okay um, science is not in the business of proving. It cannot prove anything. It can demonstrate something. It can illustrate something. It can probe something. So that's number one. I just want to make sure your, your listeners are clear on that. Um, so if you're waiting around for science to prove anything, not just God, but just anything, you're, you're going to die, and it's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, in terms of what students can do, I, I'm a big believer, as I say, because I'm an intellectual, um, in going to the primary literature. Because whenever you go to a secondary literature, then you're getting somebody's opinion about right. something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, you know, if you go to church, let's say um, the the uh, preacher or the person delivering the message will give you their take on what the Bible says. Completely, right. I just crack open, do what I did. Crack open the Bible. Just read it for yourself. Read it for yourself with an open mind. That's where I would start. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I just believe that there's no substitute for you deciding for yourself. And I say to my son, ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. I ask questions all the time. That's how I maintain the strength of my faith. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of any question. I'm not afraid of anybody because I know what's out there. I know the scientific landscape. Right. And I know that there is nothing in science right now or on the horizon that even comes close to discrediting the Bible or the existence of God. There just isn't. But I know that because I've done my homework. Now, you listeners out there might be like, oh, well, I'm not so sure. Well, do your homework. <laughs> do your homework. Don't take my word for it. You shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, that's how I would start. And, I, you know, um, there's, there are a lot of good books. You know, you can read my books, but not necessarily my books. There, there are a lot of really good books out there. Um, I'd also, if, if you are somebody out there who has the intellectual curiosity to really find out for yourself if God exists or not, uh, then hook up with some student group. I'm, is there a Christian group here in oh, Michigan State? Oh, a yeah. lot of them. Uh, and, yeah. and, and go to that. And if you want to, then do what I did. Go to the, the Muslim group and go to the, uh, the uh, Buddhist group and the, right. and the Hindu group. And then, again, decide for yourself because unless you can own your faith, it's phony. Right. Don't steps. don't take anybody's word for it. Don't let anybody spoon food you anything. And the reason I am so secure in my beliefs, both as a scientist and as a Christian, is because I've done the homework. I have done the exploration. So I, I'm just I'm I'm not I can't be rattled by anybody. I'm just rock solid. <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> but, yeah. But more than that, that takes work, you know, to get there. And I feel yeah. like faith is partly intellectual, but it's also, you know, the acting and everyday life, and how do you recommend that students, you know, continue to stay faithful to what they believe in in everyday life? Because, you know, in college, there's opportunities to try all kinds of things, you know? And it's like, how do you stay positive within your faith and true to your beliefs while also being in this world as it is? Well, I would say first figure out what you believe and why you believe it, because the best kind of faith is based on evidence. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have blind faith. I have evidence for my faith, right? Um, I would say again, once you've decided what you believe in, you just have to be strong. And again, don't fear any questions. If somebody asks you a question that kind of rattles you, okay, that's fine. But then go do the homework 
to f- get to the bottom of it. Why is it rattling you? Or right. you know, they can they can reach out to somebody like me or Dr. Brooks. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we're holding these events on campus is because we want kids to see that um, uh, there are others out there who are very solid in their faith, and we hope to be role models to you guys um, that it, it, to maintain your faith is just to do your homework and to be and to do your homework to figure out what you're going to believe in and then just stick to it. And if somebody asks you a question, as I said, then reach out to somebody like me or Dr. Brooks or, or, or books that are out there and see, see if an answer, uh, see if there's an answer for that. Um, but I, I, I prefer somebody who, who can tell me what they believe in as, as, as opposed to somebody who says, well, you know, I don't know what I believe. A little wishy-washy. Well, that, right. Yeah, because that to me is you've been given a first-class brain. Use it. <laughs> and you can only sit on the fence for so long. I think that's just a cop-out. It's like make a decision. Just make a decision. But it has to be based on evidence, Stephanie. It, has to be, it can't just, well, like one day, oh, I'm going to be a Christian. No, I don't believe in that. And I know a lot of people come through to Christianity in different ways. Some have real emotional experiences, really kind of uh, uh, Paul on his way to Damascus type experiences. Oh, yeah. Others come to it, like me, through their minds. But remember what the Bible says. It's the renewal of the mind. That's where the conversion really happens. So even if you have an emotional experience, the renewing has to come through the mind. Yeah, it's when it's talking Think it about through. being born again. It's kind of that similar Yes. Yes, topic. yes. But I want to be available to to young people who have questions or who find themselves tottering, you know, maybe they've they're new Christians and they're like, Ooh, I don't know. Reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter. I'm I'd be happy, you know, to reply. I I have a lot of people on my Facebook page especially and um I I'd be happy to be there for you. So that awesome. Facebook page is Dr. Michael Gillen, Ph.D., correct? That's what I found here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, Facebook, yeah, Michael yep. Gillen, Ph.D., and then uh, Twitter is at Dr. M. Gillen. It's G-U-I-L-L-E-N, G-U-I-L-E-N. Right, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was just about to spell that myself. Yeah. There's more on the Internet about me than you care to know. Right? Don't don't <laughs> believe half of it. <laughs> I've been Unless around you do for... your research. I think that's the... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, do that's research, the moral of today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. <laughs> but I want to encourage kids to be their own person. Like I tell my son, I don't want him to be a mini-me. I, oh, I, yeah. he, he's entitled his own life. I've, I've had a chance to have my own life. I, I need him to ask questions and do the homework Decide what you believe in, and then just stick to it. And it'll be easy for you to stick to it if it's on solid ground. If one day you just decide, you know, uh, willy nilly that you're going to believe in something, of course that's going to be shaky and it's going to be hard to hang on to. But if you do your homework, if you think through what you believe, then it's going to be harder to shake your. It's going to be hard to shake your world. It really is. You know, the old parable, or what is it, the the fairy tale with the three pigs built oh, yeah. on what is it on sand or stone or made yeah. made their houses out yeah, of yeah. straw brick and yeah straw straw brick and something something, something wood else. wood right <laughs> yeah oh man yeah. i can't believe it so you want to build you want to build your faith on something solid so it isn't easily rocked i, right. I think that's the key yeah well i just want to thank you so much for coming in and that you guys are putting on these events so students can come in and ask questions you know whether they know anything about christianity or they know a decent amount there it's an open space to talk about right Things based on, you know, science as well as, you know, the truths of the Bible. and Right. Yeah, we don't want just Christians attending these things. The whole point (laughs) is actually anybody who's at all curious. And one of the things that concerns me, guys, is that a lot of young people, studies show, a lot of young people are not even bothering to think about questions like, 
Does God exist? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? They're not even asking the questions. Right. How are you going to find answers if you don't even bother to take a break from your daily routine to ask these big questions? So mm -hmm. I want to encourage kids out there to start there. Start asking questions. Go to the primary literature and build something on solid ground. Build a, a worldview. Build a belief system on solid ground. I found it in the Bible. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank, thank you. you so much for coming in today. It oh, really my means pleasure, guys. I could go on and on. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today we're here with Robert Logan. Robert, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a fourth-year PhD student in the Integrative Biology Department and Ecology, Evolutionary Biology, and Behavior Program here at MSU. And I am based, uh, actually not at the main campus at in East Lansing, but at a satellite campus at the Kellogg Biological Station out near uh, Kalamazoo, which is the largest off-campus facility for the university. We've got like four and a half thousand acres of uh, long-term agricultural and economic, or agriculture and ecological research and, and work out there. How often do you find yourself going out to the Kellogg Biological Station throughout the week? Oh, I live there. I live on the property. It's a, There's about 20 graduate students uh, who live there full-time on the, at the station. And, um, yeah, we do uh, a range of work. My, my research isn't actually based at the station, but I live uh, on three sides of my house. Three sides of my house, the field are uh, one of the longest-running agroecology research uh, programs, program fields in the country, uh, just around there. So, well, so are you living like in a house with other people, or what is it like living on, on at the same area that you work at? Yeah, so it's a little bit strange. There's not as much. Um, well, because the campus is out, sort of about thirty minutes away from. Uh, the town of Kalamazoo, and about an hour and fifteen minutes away from uh, from East Lansing. We uh, all of the housing is owned by the university, so there's a bunch of old farmhouses and family houses and stuff. So I live in a house that was built, I don't know, a few decades ago, and used to have a family in there, and it's owned by the university. I think my neighbors on five sides in one or, or five houses in one direction, and maybe six six houses together are all MSU uh, PhD students, master students, technicians, or postdocs. Um, and every now and then you have a transiting faculty member coming through. So it's a, it's a fun place to work. Let's take a step back for a second. What do you do at the Kellogg Biological Station? My research is not actually based at the station itself. I study uh, the exciting field of what happens to plants after they die in deserts. So when plants are alive, they do photosynthesis, which everybody from elementary science class knows. They pull carbon dioxide out of the air and they use it to build their bodies. But when they die and the plants start to decompose and decay, that uh, carbon that's in the plant's tissue will actually get converted back into carbon dioxide and go into the air. So just like how you and I, we breathe in oxygen, we eat food, and then we use that to make energy and breathe out carbon dioxide. Bacteria and fungi do the same thing when they're decomposing plants. And so if you're thinking about building climate models to be able to predict climate change and how much CO2 is getting into the air over the course of an entire year, there are a lot of plants in the world and a lot of dead plants. And so our climate models need to know not just how much CO2 is going into the air from fossil fuel burning and sort of 
these artificial processes, but also these natural processes of plant decay that release CO2. And especially since if you leave food outside of your uh, outside of your refrigerator, things get warmer, they start to decay more, bacteria and fungi like to grow more. Uh, this is really important for understanding uh, since climates are going to get warmer and drier or colder or warmer and drier in a lot of places or wetter in other places, the understanding how those things are sort of related can um, can change can change climates down the way. That's really interesting. I was wondering, do you look at the specifically the fungi or the bacteria or the type of plant that may be decayed or already decayed? Or do you have samples from a specific desert that you look at? Yep. So my work is actually based in the Namib Desert in Namibia in southwestern Africa, which is a really cool study system because it's one of the driest places on the planet. So with the dry valleys of Antarctica, the Atacama Desert in Chile, and then the Namib Desert in Namibia, these are three of the driest places in the world. And I study what happens down there in order to understand what happens in uh, sort of less extreme environments. Kind of like if you want to understand what happens in grasslands and prairies and other drylands, which cover about a third of the surface of the earth, if you can figure out how to make your model works in sort of the most extreme dry end of things, that it makes it a little bit easier to sort of backpedal and try to figure out how it works in less extreme environments as well. So, uh, but you asked about the fungi and bacteria. Um, some of the work that we do is I get to go inside of a lab and I get to uh, grow crazy looking bacteria and fungi on petri dishes. I get to feed them different types of plants and see what they consume and how quickly they do it. I get to use fancy DNA sequencing techniques uh, on samples that I bring back from Namibia to the lab at KBS, the Kellogg Biological Station, in order to understand uh, who's living there, what kind of genes do they have, what are they capable of doing. Uh, and the most exciting part of my job is I actually get to go to Namibia about once or twice a year and set up experiments where I can actually track in real time uh, how plants are changing and how things are sort of decaying over time. Uh, which is really exciting. So I get to set up experiments. I get to go and give them different types of moisture. So feed things rain and non-rain rain and fog and dew and look at all how all these different factors uh, that drive decomposition interact uh, in like a really, really cool, really, really beautiful environment as well. Besides this desert being one of the driest places on Earth, is there another reason why you're studying how plants decay in this location one question that I get a lot is, well, that in terms of you work at Michigan State, you live out near Kalamazoo, why do you have to go to this crazy other place in order to understand what's happening in other places? If you want to know what's happening in wetter places or less extreme environments, why don't you just go there and study them? One of the hard parts is that you can learn, or one of the interesting things is you can learn a lot about a system when you study what happens at sort of the extreme ends of it. So for example, we have a lot of climate models that we use to predict the effects of climate change and how ecosystems are going to respond if they get wetter or drier or warmer uh, over the next few decades as a result of anthropogenic climate or human-caused climate change. But those models don't really work very well in dry places. And part of that is because there's a lot of processes that are really unique in dry places that don't happen in forests. So, for example, if you were to take a bunch of leaves that fell from a tree in a forest here, they're going to fall to the forest floor, they're going to sit in the shade, shaded by a bunch of forest, they're going to have a bunch of rain that's going to fall, they're going to have to go through the winter, there's going to be sort of a specific environment that they're in. If you're in a prairie in out in Colorado, or you're in a desert in 
Australia or you're somewhere in Mongolia or sub-Saharan Africa in a really dry environment, you're going to have grasses and leaves that are going to fall, but they're going to be baked in sunlight. They're not going to get a lot of rain. And so what I study is how these other processes that are sort of unique to dry lands uh, drive decomposition and decay and what happens there. And the really cool thing about this is a lot of the computer models that we have for understanding global climate change, they sort of assume, okay, well, you only have carbon dioxide being released from these systems when microbes are active. You only have microbes that are active when there's water. There's only water when there's rain. Therefore, if there's no rain, you shouldn't see anything happening. But the cool thing is when we go outside, we see that there actually are, there actually is a lot of things, uh, or are a lot of things that are happening in these deserts. And we're finding that a lot of it is because there's dew, fog, high humidity. There's all these other forms of moisture that are available to, uh, to the microorganisms and bacteria and fungi that live in deserts. And the great thing about the Namib in particular, so I know this is sort of a long winding answer to your question, is the Namib Desert, there's places there where on an, in an average year, they get no rain at all. There's nothing. Uh, but right at the coast, there are about 200 days of fog every year, where it's fog that comes in right off of the Atlantic Ocean. And so the further along, away you get from the ocean, the less and less fog you get and the more rain. And so you have these sort of a two opposing places where you've got sort of a rain zone, you've got a fog zone, and you see the two of them interacting. You have this really high intensity sunlight, which can degrade plants. It's a process called photodegradation. So when light breaks things down, which anybody who's gotten sunburn outside or left a plastic toy outside knows that ultraviolet light from the sun can break things down. And uh, seeing how that can change in this really dry place, it, it makes it sort of a really good experimental system where we can say, all right, in the absence of all rain, let's really just hone in and look at all these other types of moisture. And in the absence of... Uh, a lot of shade, let's really, really focus in and try to see what's the role that sunlight plays. And hopefully if we can understand sort of specific mechanisms and specific details of how those processes work, then we can try to, uh, it's a little bit easier to understand them in these relatively simple systems, whereas if you tried to do it in a forest or a bigger place where there's a lot of things going on, it's a, it's a lot harder. So, You mentioned the climate change model just now. I was wondering, can you explain how your research works with that model or against it? So climate change is happening. We know that this is happening, and we know that this is largely human-caused. A lot of the work that I do is less about sort of demonstrating that climate change is happening and the causes and more looking at the consequences of it. So, for example, in a lot of ecosystems that rely on either very, very little rain uh, or that receive very little rain, they rely very heavily on what we call non-rainfall moisture, so fog and dew and humidity. Think of like coastal fog out in uh, Western Cal California. Those plants, there's a lot of plants and animals and even redwoods that rely a lot on fog. A lot of climate models we have um, actually predict that the fog that they receive is going to decrease in the future as the oceans start to warm up and there's going to be less moisture that those plants are going to receive. Well, like I said a few minutes ago, in the Namib, we have this really, in the Namib Desert, we have this really nice gradient we're right at the coast, we have 200 days of fog, but as you drive further and further away from there, you we get less and less fog and less and less dew. And so if we want to understand, well, how are ecosystems going to respond to decreasing amounts of these moisture sources in the future as a result of climate change, one really great way to try to study that and try to make good predictions about that is to go to a place where we see a natural gradient right now and see how are things different in these different places across this gradient and then we can use that to better inform 
uh, our predictions of how climates are going to change down the future. Um, we talked a lot about different extreme environments and how you study how things decay in these environments. I have a background in astronomy, and I'm curious about how understanding these different extreme environments can help astrobiologists study different planetary systems and help us determine the possibility of life on those planets. The Namib Desert is so cool. And by cool, I mean it's super hot. And there's really high-intensity ultraviolet light, and there's hardly any water. And the soils have very, very low nutrients. They're often either volcanic rocks or sand. And so there's a lot of work uh, being done, astrobiology work and NASA-funded work, trying to study what types of organisms do live in these environments in order to understand what, what sorts of things could live elsewhere. We actually, as a side project, I have a, a side project. It's a, the Michigan Space Grant Consortium, which is a NASA-funded research group. Um, funds Michigan uh, graduate graduate students at Michigan universities to do research uh, anywhere on very broadly space related themes. We've got a side project trying to study uh, if you wanted to go to Mars and look at what sorts of things could uh, would live underneath the surface of Mars. If you found like a tiny little seep of water coming up to the surface, well, you've got a really really dry, barren environment on the surface with maybe a little bit of water underneath the sand. What kind of things would live there? Well, let's try to go to an Earth an earth analog and try to look at what sorts of things live in those environments there. So we've got some side projects that are happening around there too, trying to figure out what those, uh, what those are. Have there been any environments that you studied that are similar to otherworldly environments such as Mars that could apply the research that you've learned? Absolutely. So the NAMIB in a lot of ways, uh, at least on the surface, really looks very similar to places on Mars. Uh, the environment's very similar. It's very dry. In the evenings, it can get fairly cold. Uh, the soils doesn't have much going on. But things still live really, really long. As Jeff Goldblum said, life finds a way. And to reiterate that, we actually, um, as a side project, a couple of friends of mine and I are big sci-fi fans. And we went and watched the film 2001 Space Odyssey and noticed that uh, many of the opening scenes with the sort of proto-human apes Many of those background photos were taken only 30 minutes away from where we worked so at our, at our field station out in the desert. And so we went back there last year on the 50th anniversary when the film was uh, when the film came out and we took screenshots from this Stanley Kubrick sci-fi film and we went to the same spot. We retook photographs in the exact same location and were able to align them. And I look at over 100 plants little tiny shrubs up to large trees that were living in this incredibly barren desert that are still there 50 years later and still doing well. We were able to identify what species there were. There were multiple different types of plants. And so it's, it's always amazing what, one, what kind of, um, what kind of plants and like the ways that different organisms can survive in the harshest environments. Uh, it's also really cool when you can get data from iconic sci-fi movies that you liked as a kid and use that in published papers when you grow up. It seems like the sci-fi genre has had a really big influence on your life. How do you plan on using your love for science to further your career, and what do you plan on doing afterwards? You would think that someone in the fourth year of their PhD would have more of a defined career goal in terms of next steps. There's still a lot of things that I want to work out with that. I really enjoy teaching. I really love going out into the field to do research. I've always been fascinated by space in all forms. 
And there's plenty of different options out there. There's like a bunch of different jobs work, uh, jobs I could do. But uh, the, the two things I do know I really am interested in are field science and field biology, uh, as well as teaching and mentoring in some capacity. And there's so many different possibilities out there that I still trying to narrow that down. But there's something cool about just doing and teaching science by itself that that's what keeps me keeps pushing me forward right now. Hey, it's okay that you're in your fourth year and that you don't know what you want to do yet. I know a lot of people that are about to defend and still don't know them, so you have time. But I was wondering, what do you do with your spare time? Like, what do you do for fun all the way out in the Kellogg Biological Station? Well, my, my legs are tired and sore right now from uh, going backpacking this weekend. We've got plenty of hiking trails, and uh, we're right on Gull Lake. Um, so there's a bunch of canoeing and stuff we can do. It's a little bit cold to do that right now, but uh, KBS, the the social environment out at the out at the station is is vibrant. We got trivia nights and game nights and uh, receptions, which receptions might not sound like work receptions might not have the best uh, best reputation in in some fields, but we definitely we definitely know how to make make fun parties. What made you choose to come to Michigan State University to pursue your doctorate degree in the first place? I came here to work with Sarah Evans, who is my advisor. I applied to one graduate school, one program to work with one professor. Uh, it was very convenient. Um, Sarah was a first-year uh, professor starting her lab and trying to establish a research program in Namibia in the Namib Desert. I was a research technician working in the Namib trying desperately to find some professor somewhere back home who was willing to send me back to Namibia. And uh, we got in touch, and it, it, it worked out great. I will say for anybody who's looking at graduate school or, or uh, looking to continue on in science in, in some form, I mean, at some point, just talk to as many people as you possibly can. I, uh, my advisor here, who I've been working with for was it the, uh, four and a half years right now, we first got connected when we were just... Uh, chatting at a coffee shop when I was in college and she was just coming over as a visiting speaker and that tiny little discussion turned into a couple of emails and then we just sort of stay in touch over the years and then here I am more than half a decade later working really closely with this colleague on, the, on a lot of the same work. Um, people love to talk about what they do and people love to talk about uh, the things that are really excited. I like to do that. I'll talk about sci-fi, I'll talk about space, I'll talk about like, I'll talk about the NAMED, we'll talk about really cool scenes that we have uh, and just like beautiful vistas out there. I'll talk about backpacking, hiking, like all my hobbies. Um, and so when you've, you're really like passionate about something and you run into somebody else who also is really passionate about that, uh, just just chat, pick their brain, and yeah, maybe maybe later you can work with them, but just feel free to share enthusiasm. That's, that's really cool that you knew your boss before you were working with her and that you met her like that. I was wondering, did you always know that you wanted to work in this field or... Did you figure it out when you were visiting labs and talking to different professors about what they do? I've always known that I was interested in science. I first got interested in biology when I was in uh, high school, actually through an urban farming class that I did in high school, and that really got me thinking about being outside and the ways that plants can... I mean, it's pretty basic, but I mean, think about it. Plants literally take dirt, rain and air and sunlight and like build things out of them that's kind of insane um so that kind of really got me into that then when i got into college i started thinking more about conservation and how can we sort of use biology as a tool to help uh, 
not only understand the world, but help make things a little bit better, which is what got me into the climate change aspect of things. Um, and then I, uh, after I graduated from college, went and got a job um, doing uh, education outreach and research in Namibia at this field, sta- field station that I work at. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us in this interview today. We really appreciate you sharing all of that incredible research that you're doing right now. My closing question to you then is, what was it like working in an international field station, and what advice would you give to anyone that is interested in going across borders to perform this incredible research? It's awesome. Namibia is a beautiful country. It is a beautiful place to work. Um, and my colleagues down there are amazing and some of the best people that I know. I'd say one of the hardest parts about doing work, field work internationally is really just logistics. You got to do permits, you got to do papers, you got to do travel, you got to get visas, you got to get import permits, you got to export permits, all of that. Um, but the insights that we get from going to some of these really extreme environments and really digging in and asking these really hard questions about the biology and ecology of what's happening here um, and what we get, the knowledge and information we can get out of that and how that informs our understanding of climate change, I think is really worth it. Um, the second part too is one of the really hard parts about when I first went down there is not only not knowing anything about the system itself, but also not knowing a lot of the, not knowing the people, not knowing a lot of the culture. And I think over the last seven years that I've been, working in Namibia because I started working there before I came to Michigan State. Um, I have made a tremendous number of colleagues uh, or made a tremendous number of friends and met a tremendous number of colleagues down in Namibia who really make the work worth it. There's a lot of folks down there who are doing tremendous work, um, sort of pushing the boundaries of knowledge. And I definitely believe that I learn a lot more from them every time I go down than, uh, than they learn from me. I'm lucky to get to work there. So, and you also asked about advice for anybody else who wants to work internationally. I would say that science increasingly is becoming collaborative and it's becoming a partnership where you can work with a lot of people. I think the stereotype of some old white man in a lab coat sitting in a lab somewhere mixing chemicals is not really an accurate depiction of what science looks like these days. Um, It's lots of teams, it's lots of international groups, it's lots of people getting together to work. Uh, on answering these really challenging questions. And so if you really are interested in science, and especially if you're interested in doing international work, obviously there's always the easy stuff of study hard, read books, go to the library. Those are all really good, really important things. But you got to be a people person. you got to talk to people. You should learn about, uh, learn about how to work together on teams, um, chat with people from different places, travel a bit if you have the resources and opportunity to do so, if you're lucky enough to do that. But uh, yeah, science is all about working, working with each other in order to, to learn about the world. So don't, uh, don't discount the value of just, I don't know how else to put it, just be really, just be a good person, be good, be good at working on teams. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate the input that you gave us. Yeah, thanks, y'all. This was really fun. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.